0: welcome back to the beyond the peloton podcast i'm your host spencer martin author of the beyond the peloton newsletter this week we are talking a little bit of belated milano Sanremo talk i'll just hit a few things that stood out to me there it's it's that's it's way in the past so i won't dwell on it too much as well as the volta catalonia which is going right now and e3 which just happened just fresh off watching the finish of that race pretty exciting kind of um bodes well for the coming classic season, and then talk a little bit about Ginn Wevelgem and the classics to come. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition comes out minimum once a week. If you like the podcast, that's a no brainer. Sign up right now. And there's a paid edition comes out daily during grand tours because it covers every major race, gives you like bonus content, additional breakdowns and discounts to brands like QRA of Switzerland, Stages Cycling and Fast Cat Coaching. You can find that as well at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, first Milano Sanremo, um, super interesting race. It's I, I'm of two minds about it because it's so long, it's 300 kilometers long, and a lot of it is just you don't even have to watch it. like, um they're just they're they're rolling through remote Italian countryside. but that, that, that's also a strength because you don't really have to like with E3 this morning, I mean, there was important stuff happening 100 kilometers out. But with Sanremo, you just flip it on with 40k to go, they're going into the Ch- Chepressa and that's it. And I think it's getting better with modern cycling. It used to be a bit of just roll into the podio. There, it, Guys would get over the Poggio with some teammates and then you'd have lead out guys welding it back together for sprinters. I never found that that inspiring. It really just made it a 300 kilometer long sprint, which is just you know, it was okay, but it didn't really sparkle. But this new version where they rip up and over the Trapressa, I mean, they were going so fast. I guess it wasn't the fastest time ever. I think it was the fastest time in the last 23 years, but we all know what happened 23 years ago. (laughs) guys were on a lot of EPO, so um, can't really expect them to match that time. And then the Poggio was a little bit muted because it had been so fast on the Trapressa that um, the pace wasn't super, super high on the Poggio. There was some really big attacks from Tadej Pogacar and a little oddly Soren Krau-Anderson, but Matej Motoric, the eventual winner, was able to just kind of like Hang in the group, which which really is the key to winning San Remo. If you go back and you watch like the last four or five editions, except for Vincenzo Nibali's solo attack, which was perfectly executed towards the top, which we'll talk about a little bit. Pogaccio did not execute this that well. You really want to be in the wheels in the Poggio, even if it looks like you're getting split off at the top and you're not going to make that front group. Um, it's really about the descent. I mean, Motoric ripped the descent. He had the dropper post. Um, super controversial. You don't see them ever really at all in road cycling. It's mountain bike tech and oversized brake rotors. Uh, the downside of both of these things is, is weight. That's probably why you don't see them that often, but the brake rotors allowed him to break later into the corners. I think it really helped him on the descent. I mean, for example, he was nine seconds faster than Sean Kelly in 1992. And I thought that was about the fastest that Poggio could ever be descended. I mean, we just with like they have slipperier bikes now. They're going to be a lot more arrow. Their helmets are a lot more arrow. Their positions are more aero. So, there there will be some increase in speed, but nine seconds is a lot. Um, that I think you can really only make that up with like extreme body contortion and on the corners. And with those brake rotors really help if you can wait later and you have more braking power because your rotors are bigger and you can just take a more athletic position of an, of your body around the corner because you're you don't have a seat post, you know like jamming up into your buttocks, it gives you a lot more freedom to move around and you can carve corners quite a bit better, which is why mountain bikes have had dropper posts for like years and years and years. And then Motorich was able to stay away. Once you hit the bottom of the descent, I talked to those about this on last week's podcast. It's really, if you have a gap or you attack at the bottom of the center, you have a gap at the bottom of the descent. It's really hard to catch you because with the speeds being so high, people don't really have teammates on the other side of the Poggio anymore. So who's going to chase you back? Like someone, someone would have to really screw up and like pull another rider to a win, chasing you down. Not to mention you have a moto. I mean, if you look at the power files, it was super interesting. I think Motorich did about like, it was like 440 watts between the bottom of the descent and the finish line. Matthew Vanderpoel in the chase group did actually more watts he's heavier though so um that would be that that would factor into this a little bit but their speeds were roughly the same which shows you and and Vanderpool was sitting in a lot shows you just how much draft motorich was getting from that that moto and then uh motorich stayed away for the win super impressive i i don't know why i didn't tip him for the win i've liked him here for years and years and years he's had pretty good rides here it takes a lot A lot has to go right for him to win because he can't really win in a sprint, but he's proven he's a great solo winner like in the past two or three years. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if if this is not his last monument this year. I mean, you think about like Liege or even Flanders, Roubaix, he's really a threat. He's kind of this secret threat at nearly every monument. Maybe not Lombardia, but Modric is a good climber. I mean, he's he's really a rare breed. He's a he's a big framed guy, but he's not heavy, so it does allow him to get over the cobbles at Flanders and Roubaix, and he can climb very well. I mean, I th- you know the last two times he's done Liège, he's gotten fourth and tenth. So people talk about you know Matthew Vanderpoel, Tadej Pogacar, and I say people. This is me. And it's like that meme. We're we're trying to find who's ever is doing whoever did this. Um, I talk about riders like Tadej Pogacar, Matthew Van Aert being able to win. Um, all the monuments and you know why they can and can't do it motorich is kind of the secret one who you know oddly in many ways is better cut out than everyone i mentioned to do it where pogaccio is probably not going to win roubaix at least anytime soon and it's hard to imagine wout Benart and matthew Vanderpool winning lombardia but you know motorich is he's a special special rider and he showed that um, on saturday i was really impressed with that win Uh, another thing anthony Torgi's like really sprinted away from the chase group and almost caught motorich i thought he i thought he might win it i thought he might mow him down on the via roma which would have really been an incredible sight he gets second he's been knocking on the door for a while he's had a few good finishes at the tour of flanders in the last few years so really someone to keep an eye on and like his to, total is good <laughs> this is i was really kind of privately talking down about them to some people early before the season and now i feel a little bit like a fool like you know i thought the Sagan thing would be a disaster which it kind of has been so far but you know they've had really good results with riders who aren't peter Sagan. like not fluke results not we're chasing points you know kind of archaea is like uh kind of gaming the system a little bit but that total is just really really getting legitimate results and this was a great example of that I expect Torgis to be someone to watch at Flanders. And then Matthew Vanderpool comes off the couch. I mean, wow, When's the last time we saw that guy race? Like he's been out with a back injury all year. We hear on Friday, the day before that he's racing, he jumps in and, and races and gets third his best ever result. It, it is really impressive. And he probably will be a factor at Flanders and Roubaix just because he's Matthew Vanderpool and he's so talented. Um, San Remo is a good race to jump into. I know people were really like stunned by this, but you know, it's, 250 kilometers of of putts and about no i mean they're riding hard there's a big mountain bass but it's a great race to kind of like ride into and get the feel for racing back so in retrospect not shocking that they decided to do this i actually think it's a great great way to a build up his confidence and b just get him comfortable riding in a race again um you wouldn't want to throw someone in flanders or roubaix without having this experience and i think that's why he didn't race e3 today he raced like a, a smaller race in italy um, I think they're just trying to get his confidence in the pack back up before they get him back up. These Northern classics are insane, like, you know, PhD level bike handling, so not, and pack awareness and pack skills. So not shocking that they're delaying that as long as possible. And then the last two things I'll say about San Remo is I thought Jumbo, I was a little underwhelmed with their tactics that you use Laporte so much, like before they kind of had him setting pace, he- heading into the Poggio. And I understand Van Aert wanted to be in good position. The Poggio is normally about positioning, but because UAE really ripped it up the tripessa, Ch- the group was much smaller than it normally is. It's the smallest group I've ever seen head into the Poggio. You know, you don't have to fight for position that much. Like Motorich was by himself, I think. I don't even think he had a Bahrain teammate, and he just positioned himself perfectly. So, you know, I would have liked to see them save Laporte, save Roglic. Roglic was attacking on the Poggio, which com- is completely unnecessary. I think the goal should have been get as many guys over the poggio as possible with Wout Van art they can pull it back and he'll sprint for the win like um, I thought they were either didn't didn't focus in on that plan or the plan crumbled and guys um, just got excited on the poggio I don't quite understand what happened there because um, we've seen in recent years it's really just if you don't have teammates on the poggio you kind of have to win solo the way motorich did because no one's gonna pull you back in the group behind I, I would expect the the priority would be just to get as many riders over the Poggio with your sprinter as possible. And Jumbo could have done it. I mean, Laporte's so good. Roglic is so good, even though he's not looked fantastic lately. I remember that he did a cobbled race on Thursday in Northern France, Southern Belgium, and then flew down to Italy for this. So, And then UAE, I, I, I didn't hate their like blow it up strategy. I thought the only two things wrong with that is it just meant the pace was not that high in the poggio, because there was not 50 guys ripping into that thing, which uh, makes it tough for Pogacar to, to position on, but it, it makes the speed high enough he can attack. That's exactly how we saw Nibali won in 2018. Um, and he was attacking way too close to the bottom. Like it is not steep at the bottom and it was into a headwind. Um, he was like threw down like four or five attacks. Really impressive. But, you know, if he would have like studied the tape on that, you've got to wait till the very top. Um, Soren Crow anderson attacked actually in the right spot, but Soren Crow andersons not Taddy Pogacar or Vincenzo Nibali, and the pace was too low. So they didn't get away. I think actually Soren should have waited until, um, until the bottom of the descent to try to attack or try to go with Motorich. That's... I don't think anyone was going go to go with Matej Motoric on that descent, though. That was one of the most impressive descents I've ever seen. He almost crashed like three times, but and even like some high placed anonymous high placed people in the sport um, were telling me that they think they should take the Poggio out because it's like rewarding the wrong things. Like it shouldn't be the rider who's willing to die that wins. But I would push back. Good descending is pushing it to the limit and being able to correct mistakes. I mean, he, like he rammed into a person's front gate coming, I mean, around, he overshot a corner and ran into a gate. And was able to correct that. Like that's being a good bike handler. You know, going off the road and bunny hopping back onto the road is good bike handling. Like that's what makes you a good descender. Being able to go over the limit, over the limit, and correct it. You know, it's like the same thing with like Bodie Miller and skiing. Like the guy was always on the edge, but he was the best because he could, because he could correct those mistakes. Um, and you know, obviously, if like mudridge died on that descent, that'd be tragic. But you know, I don't even think there's ever been a serious crash in the poggio. It doesn't seem that dangerous because the speeds are not overly high because there's so many hairpins and um i thought it was just like a beautiful piece of bike handling so really liked it thought it was a great entrance to the classics to the monument season and it's kind of the bonus is that yumbo i think you know had a little bit of egg, egg on their face uh, being so strong especially at the beginning of peronese fading by the end of peronese and then i think completely bundling these tactics at San Remo. they should have just focused on getting guys over at the poggio with van art um, it like sets up this narrative where the strongest team now has to try to correct it before the big, the big cobbled monuments. So Vota, Catalunya, um, fantastic race in, in the Catalan region of Spain. A few takeaways from this last year, if you remember, Ineos just dominated this thing. They went one, two, three overall, um, was kind of an underwhelming race. I thought no one else seemed to prioritize it or come into it fit. Um, this year is completely different. We have um, the current standings are Joao Almeida in first, a second ahead of Nairo Quintana, and then Sergio Higuita in third, seven seconds back. And then you have Almeida's teammate, Juan Iosa, who's only 12, 19 years old. So uh, super impressive. He's 18 seconds back. And then Wout de Poles is 18 seconds back as well. Ben O'Connor's 18 seconds back. And then um, one of my favorite up-and-coming riders, Tobias Holland Johansson. 7th, 21 seconds back. You'll notice none of those are Ineos riders. I mean, this year it's been a complete flip for that team. Um, Richard Carapaz is their highest placed rider in ninth, 27 seconds back, which is a long ways to be back with no summit finishes left. And two kind of just hilly days where um, Almeida and Quintana will be sprinting out for like single second time bonuses to decide the winner and they have carlos rodriguez in 13th he's a minute back um good great result for rod i really like rodriguez he's really impressed me this year but um he's not fully cooked as a as a gc contender so a little odd that any Ine- has really leaned on him this year like i've been shocked at how much they've had to lean on him he was like one of their biggest riders at strata bianchi and has been kind of their go-to gc option a lot of these early stage races so Strange for a team with like a $60 million a year budget when a lot of teams have like $15 million a year. But my big, uh, few big takeaways from Catalonia, it's been a very interesting race to watch. Um, my, my headliner is I know less and less about the Zero to tell you GC every day. Like I thought Simon Yates looked the best he's ever looked at Perigny's. I thought he would come into Catalonia, dominate it, and then go into the Zero as the favorite to win the overall. Um, he got sick and dropped out of the race. So, um, even if we assume that it's just a normal stomach bug, anyone who's competed at a high level knows how disruptive that is. What are we, five and a half weeks from the start of the zero? That is that is extremely disruptive. Um, I I would worry about him if I was the team trying to get him back on track. Also, Tom Dumoulin. I was curious to see how he would do. He also dropped out. It was a little unclear what. I don't think they said it was illness. I know he maybe had COVID a month ago, maybe not. The initial report said he had COVID, then he kind of denied it. But something about Dumoulin to point out is he was not. He's not been good at climbing since he returned from his mini retirement last year. He's had some really good time trial results. And then he's never really been able to recapture that climbing performance. I'm not sure why that is. You'd think if he could time trial and he looks incredibly light, that's it right there. Like that's the recipe for climbing. But, you know, I don't know if the base fitness isn't there or what's going on, but he's definitely, I, I would not bank any amount of money on him being ready for the GC at the zero. Simon Yates and Tom Dumoulin are two of the only GC contenders for the Giro that have ever won a Grand Tour in their career. We have Richard Carapaz is is probably the third major one. He's looked better at Catalunya, he's not looking great though. Um he's he's finally showing signs of life though. So if if you believe that Richard Carapaz can win the Giro d'Italia, you have a little bit of reason to believe that coming out of this race. But yeah, none of these big contenders uh, am I feeling that great about after this week. I think Joao Almeida looks incredible. I I don't understand what's going on with the UAE team. I wrote about this yesterday for paid subscribers. I'll just kind of slightly sum it up for everybody here. But yeah, Joao looks fantastic at this race. It looked like yesterday on stage four when he won the stage and um, got tight on time with Nairo Quintana for the GC lead that he was working for his teammate Juan Iosa. And there was a lot in stage three that seemed like everyone on the team was racing for themselves. It did not seem like anyone was working for anybody else. Mark Soler attacked in the final two kilometers, which meant Joao and Juan could not chase down Ben O'Connor because they had a teammate up the road who was kind of doing it was a completely pointless attack. It's like classic Mark Soler. If you remember him from from Movistar, he never seemed to be on the same page as the team, never really seemed to listen to team orders. I was worried about that when he came over to UAE. And it seems like they're having the same problems here, but um, Almeida made this all moot on stage four. He got to the front for, I assume for his teammate, he got to the front a really long ways out. He was after George Bennett, who was uh, on a great move up the road, which forced Enios to chase. Almeida gets on the front with like 3.2k to go. Richard Carapaz attacks him. Um, on paper, this all looks good. like, Ineos has been setting pace. They pull back Bennett. Carapaz attacks. Almeida's vulnerable. But, and you'd think that's it. Carapaz rides away to the win, gets a GC lead. No, Almeida just stayed on the front. He looked at Carapaz attacking, did not respond at all, which tells me he's either like just totally screwed or feeling very, very confident. It proved to be the latter. He just stayed on the front. And it looked like he was riding tempo for a teammate, but he dropped his teammate. And then they caught, um, Higita had bridged up to Carapaz. He catches both of them. And then instead of like letting up, he just keeps, the, he, almost like he increased the pace. And he's just absolutely shredding everyone on his wheel. Um, only Nairo and Sergio Higuita can stay with him. But then he gets into the final kilometer and he just stays on the front. He's with 300k to go. He's like looking, 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 afraid someone's going to jump him. So he just is like, well, I'll just sprint from 45 seconds out, maybe even longer than that. And then held off Higuita and Quintana, who I would have told, uh, if I had to guess before the stage, who would win on a three-up sprint. Higuita by far the fastest of the three. Cantana's pretty quick himself and Almeida I don't think of as a quick rider. Um he just beat all of them in the sprint, which tells me he probably beat them on fitness. You know, these uphill finishes a lot of times are just about who is fit um and not necessarily about like who is fast. That makes sense. And so that tells me Almeida is on amazing form and possibly proving a point to his team who did not support him in the least bit the previous day and appeared to have him doing teammate duty for a 19 year old on stage four. And I would guess he was not super happy about that the way he rode and kind of made himself undeniably the team leader. In the bigger picture, this tells you I've been high on Joel Ameda since the 2020 uh, Giro d'Italia. I really think Almeida is one of the only young riders who can really challenge Tadej Pogacar because Um, this sounds simple, but if you want to win grand tours in the modern era, you gotta be able to time trial at a very elite level, and you have to be able to climb at an elite level. And not many people can do that. I mean, the Venn diagram is is smaller than you think. And Joao is one of the only people who can time trial and climb at a truly world class level. But the bare case for Joao is he's never podiumed at a grand tour or won one. (laughs) So, um, I wouldn't bet the house on him heading heading to the Giro. He is my favorite, though. I thought. He had he this uh, bad day, stage four of the last year's Giro d'Italia. But if we filter that out and we filter out all the time that he had to wait for Remco Evan to pull, he was pretty much pedal, pedal stroke for pedal stroke with Egan Bernal, who won the race. So, you know, it's there. Like the ingredients are there. It just has to, we'll have to see if he can put it together at the Giro. His his UA team is an absolute mess. I mean, stage three was really embarrassing. Like that was almost. Almost open anarchy when Ben O'Connor, who got fourth at the Tour de France last year, who's more accomplished than almost everybody in that group behind, save for Quintana Carapaz. And that's about it, maybe. I mean, Simon Yates was maybe in the group by then, but he got dropped shortly after. Um, yeah, none of those guys have gotten fourth at the Tour de France. Like, that's a really, really good result. And they just thought, nah, we don't have to chase him. I mean, if Ennios hadn't gone to the front, that. Ben O'Connor might still be leading the race because his gap would have gotten so big. But the fact that UAE had three riders in that group and none of them wanted to work for the other one shows you just really how dysfunctional that situation is. Um, They clearly didn't decide pre-race that, you know, we're working for Juan or we're working for Joao. Um, Mark Soler probably should have been the one to set pace. Uh, His attack, even if he didn't set pace, they still could have salvaged the stage by him just really ramping it up when he attacked instead of attacking himself and kind of launching Juan or Joao after Ben O'Connor. They got lucky that the gap really was only was only a few seconds by the end. It kind of hovered around 23 seconds for the entirety of the climb. And then Joao was so good on stage four that um, no one will will remember this dysfunction. But yeah, you know, I'm I'm of two minds whether this actually matters or not. UAE is an odd team. They're not Yumbo. They're not a super team they're very good. They have the best rider in the world. That counts for a lot in cycling. If you have the best rider, you're probably going to be the best team, or at least you're, you're well on your way there. When Tadej Pogacar is at a race, he fixes a lot of these problems because no one is going to say, not even Mark Soler is going to say, well, I should be the leader, not Tadej Pogacar. The guy is the best rider in the sport at the moment and potentially could be one of the best of all time. So he fixes a lot of these problems. Um, if he gets any help from his team, that's a bonus. In his first two tour wins, he really had no team around him, so he'll just be happy to have any help he can get. So it really only matters I, at least at this point in these smaller races. and it's unclear to me if UA even cares about this. like you know, maybe this is purposeful. Like the team is just like, you know, we're gonna let these guys duke it out. like like these are like the preseason scrimmages where it's like you just let the first team and the second team really go at each other. maybe there's a few fights, but you know, by the time you get into the season, you have a clear hierarchy. And, you know, maybe that's what this is. Like, you know, Joao, you got to work for Juan. And if Joao gets mad enough that he just rides everyone off his wheel, it's like, boom, that's great. He proved that he's one of the elite riders in the world and he can lead the team heading into a grand tour. So, you know, maybe that's being too kind to the UA team management. That's certainly like a, a positive way to look at what looks like complete dysfunction and disorganization. But I don't know if I hate that strategy. Like, who said that we have to have everything? If I'm running a team, I'm like, this is the Volta Catalunya. This is not the Giro d'Italia or the Tour de France or the Volta España. Like, let's just, let's get weird. Like, let's let guys fight with each other on the road. And instead of, I think Ineos is the opposite of this, where they really plan things out. They have clear, clear hierarchies that even the smallest races, they probably have hierarchies on their team rides. And I don't think that's worked very well for them. Like it's kept good riders from getting shots. Like Adam Yates last year, I thought was their strongest rider. And then he's not even at the Tour de France because they have this like hierarchy that they've decided in the preseason where it's like, well, maybe we let the road decide in the smaller races so that by the time we get to the bigger races, there's nothing left to decide. Like Ineos is working out who their leader is during the Tour de France. Like that's the worst case scenario. Um, if you let guys just duke it out at these smaller races, you know, maybe you have a clearer picture when you get to the bigger races. So while there is a a chance that like third week of the Tour de France, I'm pulling these examples out because UAE has torched Pogatar's chances of his third straight Tour de France. I don't think that's gonna happen. Um, I don't think any of this really matters other than like, oh, that's that's super interesting. You don't see that very often in professional cycling. I'm not ready to call it a total disaster. I, I actually kind of perversely like it a little bit um just just the chaos letting guys fight it out that's if i was a coach i always liked that when i was playing sports that's probably how i'd be as a coach on the other hand as i said Ineos looks fantastic except for when it comes to like winning the stages or actually doing well in the gc they're well drilled on the climbs they have these riders out there they're, they're setting pace and they get smoked they've had Carlos Rodriguez and Richard Carapaz have been dropped on every uphill finish, or at least distanced in some capacity and lost time. Um, they need to stop pacing. I don't know what's going on. Like we, we we established this at the Tour de France last year. Like Nairo is isolated on these climbs, and they're bailing him out by setting pace so that he can try to win the stages and then put time into their leaders because they've tired out their own leaders more than they've tired out Nairo Quintana, and he's taking advantage of that. Like if they just had a constant attacking strategy on the climb would be better than what they're doing right now. Um, I, I do I have no idea what's going on with that team. It's actually one of the most frustrating te- teams to watch at the moment. They have all the money in the world, and they cannot seem to get a decent GC leader at any of these races. Um, it actually would be a really fun team to kind of go over, go in and be like an activist investor, and in. I, I would love to do that. There's so much potential there, um, but they do so they, they do so little with it, and some of it is because. Their their DNA is ultra organization and you know, we're gonna do things the right way and they and they do, do that and it's admirable, but they just don't have, you know, for lack of a better word, they don't have the horses to, to make that strategy work. Like when you're not when you don't have the best rider in the race, you've got to make things crazy. Like chaos is your friend and they are like the masters of order. And when order isn't working for you, you look silly when you're when you're setting pace in the climb for other riders. Like they've bailed out João Almeida, who does not have the support of his team and has had to lean on Ineos setting pace for him to, I believe, eventually win this race. And that's kind of the last thing I'll say about this race. Um, We have two stages left. We have one second separating the GC, first and second, Quintana and João Almeida. This is awesome. And we have, uh, they're not super difficult stages coming up, but they are tricky and hilly and there's uh, intermediate sprints with time bonus Time bonuses for both of those sprints in the next two stages, so it's going to be really fun to watch Quintana and Almeida duke that out. We saw a little preview of that today at the intermediate sprint. Um, Underlining the the just chaos with UAE, uh, Joao Almeida got third in the intermediate sprint. gets a one second time bonuses time bonus, so now he's leading the GC ahead of Quintana by one second. His teammate Rui Costa finished in front of him in the intermediate sprint and stole the time bonus from him. I, I have no idea. What was going on there? Like, what's going through their mind? Like, you should lead them out, and then get out of the way so he can get the time bonuses, or you've just nullified the whole point of the lead out. I mean, maybe they were concerned that if they didn't get second, Cantana, if he be- beats Almeida, then gets that bigger time bonus, and just let them duke it out for the single bonus, so that da- you're minimizing minimizing the downside risk, you know, at the expense of you know minimizing the upside payoff, but. Maybe they figure, well, if Quintana beats Almeida, it's only a second loss. But if we try to give Almeida second place, we've lost three seconds or whatever. The it's hard to get those. Actually, it's hard to get hard information on what those time bonuses actually are. It's kind of a weird oddity about the sport. Uno X, I thought was like the star of the stage. They they led Tobias Johansson into the intermediate sprint. He won it quite easily. I don't totally understand what they were doing. He's in. Seventh place. He's still, you know, Higita's the last place on the podium at seven seconds back. Johansson's 21 seconds back. So he's still 14 seconds off the podium. Uh, Maybe they figure he's so freaking good that he can nail back enough time bonuses over the next two stages to get back on the podium and create enough separation. And if so, I love it. I love that strategy, just like ultimate aggression. Like they're a second division team who's not even at the top of the second division. They looked amazing in that lead into the intermediate sprint i love to see it i'm a huge fan of that team i'm a big fan of these up-and-coming norwegian cyclists um so i'll be keeping an eye on the next two stages of catalonia all right e3 this, it's a, this is a mini flanders really interesting race i actually think it's better than gantt which is on sunday which is probably the more prestigious race i think this is the best predictor of tour of flanders which means, while well, Vinart's got to feel pretty good that he destroyed everybody here today to win, the only rider close to him was his teammate Christophe Laporte, who got second. And then Stefan Kuhn, who really interesting emergence for him as a classics rider in third. Um, Matej Motorich in fourth, really good ride from him. I was super impressed. Binom Germain from Eritrea. This guy is 21 years old, really no experience in the classics, and he's had an amazing season so far. And a fifth place at this race is uh, it's beyond impressive. I mean, let's talk about a star of the future, and what a pickup pickup for Intermarché, and like a huge symbol for African cycling. That I think he's probably world tour cycling's not the most open-minded sport, I would say, or environment. There's a lot of the stuff that I find to be very backwards-thinking in cycling. I cannot imagine that there's a, just a lot of closed thinking in cycling where it's like, well, he, he's not used to these roads, so he's not going to perform well. Um, doesn't seem to matter. Like, I, I heard that he had never even reconned the race or the course and he gets fifth. That's absurd. Um, everyone else has probably seen this course a million times before. So um, really impressive. And I, I cannot believe he's on Intermarche. I don't know how that happened. Like, how did nobody else pick him up? um that's huge for that team um he he came to my attention at the U23 world, uh road race world championship road race last year when he got second but i thought he was going to mow down the winner and win um probably the most impressive rider for me in that in that world championship race and then i thought well you know god got to keep got a guy to keep an eye on for the future like maybe in 4 or 5 years he'll be pretty good and then he was the rider who the only rider to try to respond to Wout van and Christophe Laporte when they attacked with 41k to go to get clear on the Paderberg, which is a major climb from the Tour of Flanders. I won't go into a full breakdown of E3. I'm going to send out a premium newsletter later today that kind of goes into a little bit deeper. Um, I'd say big takeaways here is Jumbo's feeling so confident. Like, Wout Van Aert was attacking with 80k to go, um, and then pushing the pace when they got over the climb, and then just kept going. Like, with 41k to go, riding clear with a teammate, that takes a lot of confidence, like a lot of confidence. Um, FDJ looked pretty good. I mean, getting third place for Stefan Kung is is huge for that team. Ineos, uh, as bad as they've looked in the stage races, they've oddly looked better than normal in, in one days. They had Jonathan Navarez and Dylan Van Bar in the, in the lead chase group, but they get two riders in the top 10. Navarez finished the sixth, Van Bar is an eighth. Pretty good result for that team that, that it's kind of historically struggled in the one day classics. Christophe Laporte continues to look amazing. I, I don't even know what to say about, like, he was very good at Kofidis. He's so much better at Jumbo. Um, I know a lot of people will say like doping, um, just proof Jumbo's doping. I don't believe that they're doing anything that Kofidis is not. I might be naive, but um, I, I've looked into this a little bit. Laporte was saying he was kind of blown away at the training camps that Jumbo puts on. And I think this would make a bigger difference. Like the support you get around your training camps makes a bigger difference than a lot of fans might assume. Where Yumbo is sending him away with his family so he can train, like, you know, know, in in either the Balearic Islands or the Canary Islands. And I don't think Kofidis was supporting them at all, really. Um, The fact that he's so much better than he was at Kofidis should be, it's like hugely damning for the Kofidis program. Um, And that's also another thing. If you think Yumbo is, is doping and cheating just wait till you learn like if you the more you learn about these french teams like the kind of the less you'll think that because they are really underutilizing their talent like if Wout Van Aert went to race for Kofidis it'd probably not be nearly as good as he is I mean these are just really poorly run teams and like this is exhibit a like where Kofidis's best rider who is a good but not great can just leave teams and when he's getting the right support and right in rate uh, right right support outside the race during training and right in-race support that he can basically just like ride the whole peloton off his wheel that shows you that there's something wrong with that team and then that's the way i'm leaning on this the long bomb that's uh motorich's win at centorama was on a long bomb but it was pretty long for that race normally you'd wait a little bit closer to the line but the solo win is getting this technically wasn't solo but team time trial from 41k out I'll count that as a long bomb attack. It, it's it's the way to win now because there's no cooperation in the chase groups anymore. You know, one theory I have is I've seen this at Catalonia where there's like dysmorphia. There's like status dysmorphia. Like when Ben O'Connor is off the front and Mark Solaire is saying, well, I don't have to chase him. Like that's not being realistic about where you stand in the peloton compared to Ben O'Connor, who's gotten fourth overall at the Tour de France. Like you're Mark Solaire, You need to be chasing him. Um, I think a lot of riders, there's this, this culture of like anyone who's ever been mentioned as a future star then believes that they're currently a star and won't chase down other riders for their team. Um, they, everyone wants to ride like a team leader. And I wonder if that is having an effect where it's easier to go from a long ways out because there won't be a concerted chase to close you down. Um, it's just a, a, a random theory I have. I have no idea if it's right. But we're definitely seeing like whatever the case attack from a long ways out. Like the first man is getting rewarded. Um, in a lot of these races, I expect the same thing to happen again. Uh, maybe not a solo attack, but the race will break up a long ways out. Same thing at Flanders, same thing at Roubaix. Um, attacking 80k out. It almost looked like Wout van Aert. He reminded me of Fabian Cancellara, um, during his 2013 season when he won E3, one Flanders and one Roubaix. I mean, he looked like he was messing around. Like it just looked like he was training with with his teammate. Um, it's it was really shocking to see. Kind of an. I was surprised when Laporte and Van Aert got to the front of the Paderberg that Germain was the rider on their wheel. Like it's impressive for Germain, but everyone else in that group didn't think that that was important. Like either they completely misread what was going on. We all. Probably knew the move was going to go there when we were watching on TV. Like, did they not know in the group, or were they just too tired, too blown to get on his wheel? I, I was really, really surprised by that. That that no one except a 21 year old, basically world tour rookie, um, was was in the spot where you'd want to be. E3 is a great predictor for success later in the classics. Tom Boonen won here in 2012, went on to win Flanders and Roubaix. I mentioned Fabian Cancellara won here in 2013, won Flanders in Rebay, Nicky Terpster won here in 2018, and won uh, Tour Flanders. Casper Askren won here last year and won Flanders. So if you're Wout Van art, you kind of feel pretty, pretty good about this. Yumbo, I thought some of their tactics at the end of the last half of uh Nice, and as I mentioned earlier, San Remo were not great. Um, they, they looked fantastic today. Like they probably have it down. Um, some of their tactics, kind of maybe they get a little bit smoothed over because wout van Aert's so good like that wout van Aert riding clear from 41k out will make your team look pretty good um but really they don't have to i noticed with you know maybe 100k to go they were pretty far back so i was thinking oh that's odd like what do they not think this is an important part of the race but you know kind of with the snap of the finger when stuff got serious with about 90k to go they were at the front breaking it up, clearly had a plan. We're clearly confident in Wout, who clearly is confident in his own fitness. So I liked what I saw from Yumbo today. Long story short, I think um, not many riders are going to be able to challenge him. Quick Step got a real wake-up call today. They've not been great in the Cobble Classics. Even though they won Kern-Bussell's Kern, I thought that was kind of an uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic passive race from them. Um, They got their doors blown off here. I mean, this was bad for them a lot of times they'll they'll not perform well early in the kaba classics and say well uh, the real races are later but like guys we're quickly approaching the real races and you are getting out like they were outridden by fdj today like that's that's highly embarrassing for them Uh, askering got 10th pretty good result um i wouldn't say he was disappointing but their next best rider was David Ballerini in 53rd place. Like, this is supposed to be the Wolfpack. Like, their whole thing is strength in numbers, and they had no numbers at the front of the race. So, if that's going to be the case, they do not have the individual talent to compete with Vanderpool and Van art at these major monuments if they do not have their numbers up there. So, that really stuck out to me. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool probably would have been fun to watch at this race. As I said, he was at like a small race in Italy racing instead the optics are goofy there but i i think the team's just trying to get him comfortable racing again before they send him up to these classics i assume he'll be at tour flanders um and Per bay though or at least i hope he is because if he's not it might be the wild show i I don't think anyone except maybe christophe laporte can can match him at this point um uh, someone did reach out to me uh, after the race, saying like, "Is Wout going to be too marked now at Flanders and Roubaix?" Um, I think yes. I don't think him winning or not winning today made a difference. Um, that's kind of the curse of the favorite at these one-day classics. We saw Fabian get marked out of a lot of a lot of the spring races when he was at his peak. Same thing with Peter Sagan. You just have to be better than that, though. I mean, there's really nothing to be done about it if it's not like if you like sandbag at E3 and get well again people won't mark you at Flanders like you're Wout van Aert you have the Red Bull helmet <laughs> like that's no one gets to ride a Red Bull helmet so people know you're good people know you're the best you're just going to have to deal with it and the new Flanders course E3 is even easier than Flanders it's it's a much shorter race and the climbs even though it's a lot of the same final climbs as Flanders they're much further from the finish um, the new Flanders course with, the uh, Paterberg and old choir Mart so close to the finish and the circuits they do. Well, if you have the legs, you're going to win, like you're going to be able to drop the others on those climbs and solo to the victory if you're strong enough. So we'll see what happens there. I'm, I'm excited to watch gent wevelgem on Sunday to see if I, I, I would be shocked if Vanneau wins again. Um, he might try to race a little bit more conservatively on Sunday. He won that race last year, but then I kind of started to fall apart a little bit, Um, was not as impressive at um, Tour Flanders the next week. So I'm curious to see how he approaches, how he and Jumbo approach Sunday. I don't think they'll go for another long bomb attack. I think that would be maybe a little bit too much, kind of overloading the body there. So we'll we'll see what happens. But I think E3 is the better predictor anyway. Um, It's one of my favorite semi-classics of the year. I was really, I had a, a fun time watching it. I was really impressed with Venart. I mean, the the whole top three, Venart, Laporte, and Kung really, really looked good. Matty Motoric, watch out for him. He's not super highly tipped in these Cobble Classics, but the way he looked today, I mean, um, I, I'm a little surprised he didn't try to counter the move from Venart and Laporte, but he looked pretty, pretty good in that chase group, and he could be like an outside, you could imagine him getting clear um there's that long kind of 10k final run into the finish at Flanders you can imagine him winning that and there's a similar long run into the finish at Welfigem on Sunday so keep an eye out for him but everyone else really looks a step below um it's going to be a tough battle for for Casper Askren to reclaim his tour Flanders title this year especially without the help of that quick step team who looked who I said earlier just looked absolutely terrible all right. Well, thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Got some big guests next week, big guests next week. I might have to split it up into two episodes. I'll, I'll do, you know, maybe a breakdown of getting, well, again, early in the week, and then a, a Flanders preview later in the week. All right. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Bye.